You might already have a car collection, but do you have a racing car collection? If you've ever dreamed of the ultimate racing stable, there is a way. That's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, AutoArt, Mini Champs, and others. So for your racing stable, how about the 1991 Le Mans-winning Mazda 787B? or a Porsche 917 in martini livery, or a Lancia Stratos rally car. Model Citizen also carries iconic street machines, like Kyosho's super-detailed Toyota FJ60 Land Cruiser. It's a big model in 1/18th scale, with doors that open and wheels that steer. Just go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout for 10% off your order. Limitations apply. That's ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from all points of the compass. Thanks for all your support of the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, which, in case you didn't know, is absolutely free. Just click that little subscribe button and I will charge you exactly $0.00 and 0 cents. And if you enjoy the show, help me get the word out by sharing it with your friends. Okay, let's get into it. Today my guest is Phil Toledano. Phil is an artist and a commercial photographer and an obsessive collector, whether it's cars or wristwatches, he's always got his eye on something interesting that most people overlook. For Phil, it's all about clean, striking design. He's developed pretty much a cult following on Instagram, and I suggest you follow his account too, which is at Mr. Enthusiast. But don't think that Phil takes himself or his cars too seriously. In fact, almost as a joke, he recently launched a new automotive clothing line called Viva Bastardo, of all things. And it was inspired by his love for a little bit of a hooligan attitude in his cars. And if that doesn't really make any sense to you right now, how that name ties into some of the coolest cars ever built, stick with me and I think it will become delightfully clear to you. We also talked about the amazing succession of cars he's owned and what interests him from a design perspective, and even some of his shenanigans with Magnus Walker, and a bunch of other random stuff. This one is kind of freewheeling, and we are all over the place, but it was really fun, and Phil is hilarious, as you'll see. And by the way, just in case you normally listen to the show with your kids in the car, or whatever, I do need to warn you, there's a little bit of explicit language in this episode. It's nothing really shocking, but... I felt like you should know before we get started. All right, so without further ado, I give you Phil Toledano right here on Horsepower Heritage. Let's hit it. Hey, ciao, bastardi. <laughs> I want to talk to you about your your Sound. peculiarities, automotively speaking, right? So <laughs> Sounds good. And just goof around, man. Let's goof around. So... Tell us about Mr. Toledano. Well, about the cars. Well, I mean, you have you clearly have a very distinct aesthetic, whether it's wristwatches, cars, I mean, spacesuits. You're as discerning a spacesuit collector as I've ever met. 
<laughs> and you've met numerous, I'm sure. Oh. Who doesn't have a spacesuit at home, to be honest, man? TBH. I mean, it's funny. I guess I started in the 80s. My first car was a 1984 Mark One VW Rabbit. And I was, I'd always been sort of, I'd always been interested in cars, but not like psychotically. I just sort of loved design. I always loved design of every, everything. And I, and I actually, I remember I had it when I was living in, Mor when I was in Morocco, I had cut out an ad. I put it on the wall. It was the only car ad I would cut out. It was a, it was a 1984 Camaro Z, Z1 or Z1 whatever, in red. And that was on my wall because that to me, uh, holy shit, that just looked amazing to some guy growing up in England where everything was in, this, in the 80s. You know, England was just kind of all gray and beige and miserable. Yeah. So it was like misery porridge. I started off with that VW. The muffler fell off. And I really loved it. Then I was like, wow, okay, now this sounds really exciting. The way this, I don't know what's happened. This thing fell off the back and now it sounds incredible. And then I sort of, I don't know, I've just been down a lot of automotive wormholes. I, you know, started off with a, some Porsches, had a Volvo 1600, uh, no, sorry, 1800. And then I, the first sort of really posh car I bought was the 72 or 71 two Ferrari 246 Dino. It was a dark, just regular blue blue Sera. that makes me think of the alfa romeo dutch blue yeah exactly exactly very close i i i, I mean and once i started what well, it was funny because i had made some money and 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 then when i bought the dino i suddenly realized oh i can i have money now and i can buy cars that i like and it was weird that realization that i could suddenly buy cars like i, I never really thought that i could really buy cars and suddenly i was buying cars i could do it somehow now um, were you were you married at that point no okay so another bonus right <laughs> that's right although to be honest though my wife is amazing she just doesn't like she just encourages me she's never said oh that's a bad idea she's always been super cool about that stuff which is pretty amazing mine wow. too and i don't mean to take anything away from the the women in our lives but the simple fact that you suddenly have money in your pocket and you're unencumbered you know whether it's yeah. a mortgage or a marriage for sure. or oh for sure man no you're absolutely right i mean it's it's kind of it's like it's like opening the opening a door you try you've always been you know it's, it's i don't even i can't even i was going to try and make a terrible metaphor but it is it's an it's an unbounded feeling of freedom of and kind of and it's kind of giddy lunacy because I'm like, holy shit, I've got this amount of money. I can buy this thing. Or I can buy that, <laughs> buy this thing. And, and like you say, you have no mortgage. You have no, you don't have, you know, one saying, hey, well, you know, you simmer down. Um, so and, and I, I sort of fell down this rabbit hole of, of um, but I, I, I was going to the very early on to like cars and coffee. Um, and I was really disinterested in, in the reason that the thing that attracted me to the Dino was that I find, and, and I've thought about this a lot over the last 10 or 20 years, a lot of cars are kind of shrouded, they're obscured by mythology, like false mythology. And right. then, so people don't see the car anymore, they just see the words that other people repeat about the car. So for instance, the Dino, I loved it because I never saw, no one ever, in the, in the, in the like 2000, early 2000s, no one's really driving those cars around, you just didn't see them because people didn't like them. Because people, and when I got it, people were like, oh, it's not really a real Ferrari. Um, it's a six cylinder. The engine's mid engine. You know, it's got to be a 12 in the front. And to me, that was all glorious to hear because then that, that sort of made me happier that I'd bought someone that other people weren't really interested in. I totally so remember that, that period too. They were the ugly duckling, the redheaded stepchild, whatever, whatever cliche you want to put on it. But 
Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was like a switch flipped. And suddenly they were number one, Ferraris, number two, worthwhile, and number three, worth a hell of a lot of money. That's right. And they were, and for my money, for my, I think that it's the Dino is one of the most beautiful cars Ferrari ever built. Um, but you're right. I mean, and I find it really interesting that people kind of repeat almost like it's almost like being in church or something. They just repeat these verses they've learned that have been passed down through the generations, these hymns, these prayers. It's not a 12. It's not a 12. You know, it's not a, it should be a 12. And, all this <laughs> and then suddenly, like you say, a switch happens and everyone's like, oh, it's an amazing car. It's look, it's beautifully balanced. It's so much fun to drive. It's all the rest of it. And I've made, I've sort of made a bit of a, not a career, but of a, I worked, when I worked in advertising, I worked for this guy and he called me a pathological contrarian. And, 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 it, and when he said, it, I was like, holy shit, so true. Because I'm when, when I, I look at something and I, and I look at the way everyone's looking and then I always instinctively look the other way. And that's not to say that I'm some kind of savant genius, but because I often end, end up in little weird pockets of strangeness that no one's interested in the thing I'm interested in. And then, of course, you buy that stuff and then when you, you're tired of it, it's impossible to sell it because it's totally weird and no one likes it. But, but... I, I, so I, I sort of, I bought an Iso Grifo, um, which again, there was Giugiaro design, amazing piece of design. It was like, oh, what do you want? It's got a Corvette engine. Why would you bother with that? Um, and I, and I, I sort of had a, some 60s stuff. And then I, um, I went down to this dealer in Florida to look at a, the Tommaso Mangusta, which is so beautiful. And, and it was the worst it was such a piece of shit. It was like my head was pressed up against the windscreen. The driving position was so weird. And I drove it from, it was like driving a US postal truck, but worse. Wow. And then, and, then, and it was such a disappointment. And I drove it for about seven minutes. I got out, I was like, okay, this is really not for me. But the guy had a BMW M1 in the dealership. He had all sorts of interesting cars. It was a pretty interesting dealer. It was in Fort Lauderdale, I think. So I thought I'd never been very interested in the M1 because it always sort of looked a little ungainly to me. And I don't know, like I was in the whole sort of sixties mindset, the curves, the, you know, the, the swoops, all that stuff. But he, I thought, you know what, man, while I'm here, can I just see, can I, can we go for a drive in this one? He said, yeah, sure. And I drove it. And, uh, and after about a, like five or 10 minutes, my balls just exploded <laughs> with joy. <laughs> Because it was so great to drive and it sounded so incredible. And I was like, holy shit, I have to have, I, I need to, I just, I don't, in, in that second, man, I thought, you know what? I am done with the 60s. I am just finished. All I want to do is buy 1980s cars. And then I, I, and I fell down, the, I, I found an M1, I didn't get that one, I found another one. Then I fell down this rabbit hole of Group B rally cars, homologation cars, because the, the BMW is a homologation car. It was built right. to, for a race series. And I love this idea of buying cars that have been designed for a purpose that wasn't just posing or looking good. It was tuned for the race series, which was exclusively M1s. Is that right? Well, no. What they had done was they, BMW built the M1 to race uh, in Group 5, which group is a five. race. Group five was then cancelled, and then they built it. Although they, it was cancelled, then they then I think they tried to get it for group four, but then they were too late. So then they did a pro car series. Pro only car, on, right? It's a right. pro car series, which was just only M ones. 
which is kind of genius because you had all these famous race car drivers driving exactly the same car, which is kind of a cool idea. So it was kind of, it was a miracle. I mean, the M1 was kind of a disastrous project, like at the big, all the way through, like they did it in conjunction with Lamborghini. Lamborghini went fast. They had to go in the middle of the night to the Lamborghini factory and get all the stuff and bring it back to Germany. It was all disastrous. Um, but also there was a car that was kind of been kind of ignored for decades, right? It was well, in the early 90s, it was like 80 grand that car. So then I fell down this homologation rabbit hole. So I got, you know, a Lancia Stratos. I got a Lancia 037, a Lancia Delta S4, a Mercedes Evo 2. I mean, all this crazy, amazing shit. And then I just sold it all last year. Now, were you just going on a spending spree or was this progressive? I mean, how did that? No, this because- this is over the course of like seven or eight years. I would buy stuff and then I would sell something to buy something else. Okay, it wasn't so- like I had two million bucks. I just bought it all in one go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that look, unless you've got, I've always, I've always said this, sadly, unless you're like Jay Leno, unless you've got unlimited funds and, a, and an unlimited amount of space, I've got space for like five cars and a little, I'd rent a little garage out in New Jersey. Um, so um, when I sold all my 60s stuff to sort of fund my, my descent into the 1980s and 1990s, the wormhole. Uh, so, but then I sold all that stuff last year or so. Um, I kept the M1, actually. And then I've recently been buying. It took me a long time. I had like a sort of, I had great r- sadness over the loss. I'd sort of, I mean, you know, I, was, I was sort of happy to sell them because I've been driving Group B for a long time. And, I, and I, it took me a while, like seven or eight months to sort of figure out what the things were that were interesting to me again. Group B. So we're talking about rally driving, a rally series in Europe. And basically the cars were like so damn good that they canceled Group B. Is that pretty much? Well, no, actually, the the, the canceled Group B because the cars were so dangerous. Right. That's what I mean by good. Like, yeah, <laughs> good, good in that way. Good in the sense, well, because... Well, the whole Group B thing, if you ever watch, I mean, it's worth watching. You should watch on YouTube Group B rally races because what you what happened is that all the spec there were no rules or anything so all the spectators were right on the side of the road like people would get out in the middle of the road to take pictures try and touch the cars so what was happening was the the Lancia Delta S4 and Group B spec in racing spec was doing 0 to 60 in 2.3 seconds on gravel now that was faster yeah it was 800 horsepower that was faster than Formula One at the time it was and I mean my Delta S4 was 280 horsepower and, and I thought holy shit like it, like another hundred would freak me out on that car. Um, so they were killing the spectators. Then, then the Delta S4 actually was sort of credited as the car that killed Group B because Henry Toivonen, who was driving, I forget the name, his co-driver, they went off a cliff and they just incinerated themselves. So there was all these people died in a short space of time. So they said, okay, that's it. It's too dangerous. We're going to, you know, because the manufacturers are just kind of getting crazier and crazier with the cars in terms of the horsepower, what they could do. Which th- this whole thing, I mean, if, if you if you want to talk about danger, think about all of the European road racing in the 1950s, for example, like the Mille Miglia where- No, but that's exactly right, man. But it's interesting you say that because I the group, for me, Group B was the last, in a, in a peculiar way, it was, the last, it was the golden age of motorsport racing in, in exactly the same way as it was in the 50s and 60s when it was kind of a free-for-all and it was- there was no consideration really for safety. I mean, there was, you know, they had roll cages and all the rest of it, but, but it, I, I think it's a very apt analogy. Yeah, I, I can see where that would, you could consider that the last sort of golden age. Well, also, also there was kind of a, 
there was kind of this frenzy, like all every major manufacturer was just piling in. I mean, you know, Porsche was doing the tried to, the nine five nine was supposed to be Group B. The two eighty, the Ferrari two eighty eight was supposed to be a Group B car. Um, the Jaguar XJ two twenty was originally supposed to be a, two, a, a Group B car. Like Ford was, you know, I mean, people just the, everyone was just piling money in because they wanted to get in on it because it was just the thing. It was so exciting and the it was it was it was incredible at the time. I bought all those cars because I just wanted the. It was so romantic to me that proximity to that. Am I not correct in thinking the the Lancia Stratos was developed just prior to Group B or maybe yeah, four? that was a, the Stratos. Well, for Lancia, they had the Fulvia Fanalone, which actually I own in the right. in Group Four. Um, then, uh, then the Stratos was Group Four. Then the O three seven was Group B. S Delta S four was Group B. You you said you had an HF Fanalone, right? Yeah. So that car, we're talking about a V four. All the Lancia engines were before cylinder. They were all some version of the Lampredi engine, like the O three seven, the S four. And even the, the the Delta Integrale, which I have now, all four cylinder engine. Yeah, but it, the Delta Integrale is it? It's a it's an inline four, right? Uh, you know, you're talking the mechanical village idiot man. Oh, the the the, the Fanaloni has a it has a really weird cantered over. You're right, it has a weird cantered V4. You're right. It's some yeah it's, yeah. You're right. Which yeah. is the cool esoteric, just like bizarro thing about those Lancias because. Who builds a V4? I mean, and yet they did it, and they did it with tremendous success. Well, Lancia was always incredibly, I mean, they were the kind of the engineers' car. They overbuilt and overengineered everything. I mean, when you look at Lancia's, when you, I, I, and I've owned a bunch of other ones, but the engineering's always beautifully done in a way that was not so good in other top brands at the time. Yeah, and unfortunately, those companies don't survive sometimes in the case of Lancia, I, they got what absorbed by i think fiat group yeah well Lancia was i mean they were building cars they were, it was so expensive the way they were building cars was so expensive because the engineering was 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 so incredible and the way they just built them was extraordinary so they they were i think they were just they couldn't make money on the cars yeah that's the thing how do you continue to compete in a world market like that that's that story is true of so many car brands over the years i mean honestly that's what happened to Bugatti. That's what happened to Bentley prior to its sale to Rolls Royce in, I think, 1930 or 31. Yeah. I'm actually reading W.O. Bentley's autobiography right now, and it's fascinating. Just a little tangent. He originally was going to work on the railroad. He was fascinated by locomotives and the amazing motive power of rail. I mean, to me, I see the connection to his cars because if 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 you've ever seen a pre-war Bentley, people, I mean, we're yeah. talking about a huge straight six with gobs of torque because the um, stroke of those engines is a mile long and they oh, will pull right. like a train. It's true. Yeah. So let me just recap cars that Phil has owned. Okay. <laughs> Motore de fil. Ferrari Dino, Lancia Delta Integrale, Lancia Fulvia HF Fanalone, Lancia Stratos, BMW M1, Maserati Shamal. Talk Wait. about that. Dude, I have <laughs> you got that like five cars, <laughs> but you're right. Well, the Shamal, look, here's the thing for me is like I said, man, I really like to poke around in, in it's so interesting and exciting to look around, like peer into the fog 
that history where and find cars that history is obscured for one reason or another, right? Um, so Maserati in the 80s, kind of a disaster. Like everyone talks about, you know, by turbo, it's a terrible, terrible car. But the Shamal was different. So the Shamal takes so first of all, designed by Gandini, right? Gandhi Kuntash. What is it that speaks to you about these designs? Take your time. I've never really <laughs> I've never really thought about it, man. I mean, I'm just I've I'm I'm a collector, whether it's cars or watches or anything really, and I just purely respond to aesthetics. I've never been very interested in the mechanical aspects of anything. I don't really know much about like the mechanics of cars. You know, I found it's all kind of like dark arts to me. I've never wrenched anything. It's just the idea, I mean, like, you know, like checking the tire pressure for me is a staggering feat of, of mechanical genius. <laughs> so, so I guess I just, I just, I don't know, man. I just love the, I love the futurism of it all. I love the, the, the boldness of it. I mean, it's just, it's. Well, there is a certain optimism in all of those designs, right? Well, I think that the 70s in particular, I mean, look at Gandini and Giugiaro, the stuff they were doing, it almost felt like they just reinvented a whole new language that then echoed on throughout the last 30 years. I mean, those two guys are responsible for sort of reinventing car design. The 70s was an incredibly audacious time for design, whether it's furniture, cars, watches, houses, architecture, all of it was extraordinarily audacious. And and if you look up to the 60s, everything was sort of bubbly and roundish and all the rest of it. And then all of a sudden, the 70s, these two guys kind of just created the wedge between the two of them and, and folded paper design or whatever you want. I mean, there's all sorts of names for it now. Um, and, and they were the future. And, and they just, and they were like in their 20s. I mean, they were like, what, 22? And they were just churning out masterpiece after masterpiece. I mean, how incredible must it have been to be at Pininfarino or or Bertone, any of those places in 1972 or three, man. I mean, and to be, I mean, it just seemed like they could do anything. I mean, look at all the concept cars, the Caribou, uh, I mean, all that stuff, all the concept cars are unbelievable. The Strato Zero, you know, and they're so radical. They are radical. They're highly optimistic. And by the way, the rest of the car world was in the doldrums, if you ask me. I mean, Especially in the United States, but but the British, the British were unfortunately like they were hamstrung by all these labor disputes in their car industry, and nobody was making any money, and uh, you know factory workers were unhappy, and the cars were coming out just like poorly built, and design was at its low ebb, and the Germans were BMW actually was was a little bit more audacious. I mean, they had done. The 300, uh, the 3.0 CSL, which is really beautiful. They did the Batmobile, which is kind of crazy. And then they went with the M1. So they had this sort of burst of lunacy over there. So, I mean, someone was drinking just drinking mushroom tea over there in Munich or wherever it is, and BMW headquarters. But you're right. I mean, but the, but the Italians, man, it was just, God, I mean, what a time to be in car design in Italy. Yeah, for sure. I love it. And um, I picture it's funny how you talked about how prolific they were at an at a young age. I I picture either Giugiaro uh, or Gandini like in the design studio, unshaven. They haven't showered in days. They're like Michelangelo, right? You know, like well, I, not, I, I, I wonder if there's like a you know how they say that like physicists or mathematicians like they only have like five or ten years, like in their twenties. That's when they peak. And I feel like those two guys just they just designed everything 
And then they just sort of coasted on all that. They ate out on those on those designs for the next 30 years. I mean, they're all just sort of variations of those things. If you look at the Delta Integrale, you know, Giugiaro designed that in the in the late 70s, and then he evolved it for 12 years. Gandini's in the design studio. He's, you know, got body odor. He hasn't he hasn't showered. He, he hasn't he's maybe eaten. He's maybe had some coffee in the last 48 hours and nothing but he doesn't else. Care, man. He doesn't care because he's just churning out genius and he knows whatever he draws is going to get greenlit. There's That's no, like, right. Bored at Ford, like, you know, hemming and hawing and, oh, I don't know, son, you know, uh, they're, they're just like, hey, fantastico, Gandini, ciao, and all that kind of stuff. And they're just sending it all out. But the Chamal is the baron of box flares. I mean, that car has box flares to end all box flares. It's amazing. So it's got the Gandini, the trademark Gandini wheel slash, the wheel arch slash that we had on the start on the Countach, I think. Um, and then it's just sort of massive box flared, wasp wasted um, V8 twin turbo, uh, 340 horsepower, I think, in the, it was the very last car of the 1980s. It was released i think december 16 1989 it just has kind of dis oh and they only made 270 of them. so it's this super rare beast but it sort of disappeared into the fog of history it was that it was what did, did actually oddly enough did tomaso owned uh maserati at the time and this was the final this was like their hail mary to try and save the brand maserati was sinking and they were like okay let's just make something amazing and hope maybe this will save us but didn't save anything um so I just think the design's super cool. It's got a lot of power. It's a very small car. I mean, I don't know what it's, I don't know what it's going to be like when it arrives. If it's going to be, uh, I, do you ever watch Harry's Garage? Those videos on Harry? Yes, I love it. Yeah. So I watched. He 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 reviewed one, and that was the kind of nail in the coffin for me. I was like, okay, that's because Harry likes it. Then it's good enough for me. Yeah, totally. And you alluded to something that the small batch production. That's kind of a thread of your collecting life, right? That's a, that's a very astute point, sir. And and the thing uh, that when I was buying, like when I was buying all the Group B stuff, I was thinking to myself, here are all these people buying Ferraris for a shitload of money, and they made thousands of them. And here I am, I can buy a Group B car of which they made 200 of, and I can get it for an eighth of the price or a third of the price of what these people are paying for Ferraris. And this is a car that, you know, 200 designed for competition. How, how is that not cooler? So I've always loved the exclusivity of, of low production number cars. And, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. You can buy a Shamal or you, I had an Alpha SZ from the 90s. That's a low production car, which I think is super cool. Um, I just, it, and you know, it's sort of the low production thing just appeals to the snob in me. Like it just, whenever I, whenever, I, what I've realized with myself is whenever I own a car and if I start seeing other people buy that car and I start going to Cars and Coffee and there's some of those same cars hanging around, then suddenly I'm not interested anymore and I have to look for something weirder. Well, and doesn't that bring us kind of back to what, that characterization that was made of you that you're a compulsive contrarian or a pathological, pathological <laughs> yeah. contrarian, right? Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. It's funny because it's so interesting how you can be so unaware of who you are. I mean, when, when this guy I worked for said that, I, I, it just was like a kick in the nuts. I thought, shit, you are so right. And how could I not have seen that for my entire life? Everything about me is always, the reflex is always the opposite, you know, often to my detriment. And it was so amazing that I just didn't know that. So it's just, it's just I don't know how that started. You're like George Costanza in that episode where 
That's right, man. Exactly. I'm on a con- I've got like a permanent Costanza syndrome. Do everything opposite of your instinct and life will work no, but, out. Well, no, but my instinct is the opposite. Right. That's the funny thing. Yeah. Like it's not that I'm conscious. It's not like say, oh, and it's, I'm not even thinking about it. It's not like I see everyone buying like a Ferrari F40. I go, okay, what's the opposite of a Ferrari F40? It's just my, it just, it just, it just happens. By the way, the opposite of an F40 is a Trabant. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm glad I didn't go down that rabbit hole. So what is, tell me about this geezer thing. What is this geezer thing you keep going on about? Well, geezer in England, it means a couple of things. The, 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 the kind of traditional meaning of the word is, 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 is old man. But in England, it also means like, you know, like, it's like saying guy, like Eric, you say, hey, guy. You'd be like, all right, geezer. And also a geezer is a bit like, oh, he's a bit of a geezer. It means you're a bit of a, like a... So geezer is kind of a, it's, it's, it's not a pejorative. It's a, it's an honorary. Yeah, exactly. Cause in England, everything is always tinged with a vague amount of like abuse. There's a little, little frisson of abuse and everything you say to people in England. Yeah. I noticed that most Brits uh, are sort of like velociraptors. They come at you from the side and not directly. <laughs> That's right. And you look down, you've been ev- eviscerated, but you haven't noticed the evisceration because it's done with such charm and delicacy. So the geezer thing I love and you and Magnus have sort of taken on the mantle of geezer one and geezer two. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, well, we're both, ge- well, first of all, we actually are real geezers um, age-wise. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, we, well, we, were ha- we were doing this on the regular for a while. We're having those, uh, those, those chats on those Instagram lives. I think we're actually planning on doing it. Once the Shamal is in, the, is in town, we might do a, a, another geezer, geezer on geezer hot geezer on geezer action talk. So Me. you and Magnus have almost single-handedly introduced younger people to those cars. Listen, man, I'm nothing. I mean, Magnus is like a, yeah, like you say, he's like a Tom Hanks. and I'm like carrot top. <laughs> yeah, but you've managed to cultivate an aesthetic of your own. Let's talk about Viva Bastardo. Man, your pronunciation is amazing. Grazie. So Viva Bastardo, well, it start, I bought a Lancia Delta Integrale from Japan, and it was kind of like a bastardo car. It was a hooligan car. Like it arrived, and it was you know festooned in on the dash, all these extra gauges, and it was like a high G-force like knee pad on the on the armrest, and there were you know Sparco races, and it was just all just super hooligan. And so I have never had all. Whenever I buy cars, I've always tried to buy really straight, like untouched examples. And I never really bought a car that had been just messed around with like this. And I, and I found that really liberating. I was like, "This is amazing! Now I can do stuff to it." So it was started off. It had been painted, and so I thought, you know what? I'm going to make it my own. So I changed the color. I painted it like this light gray. Um, actually, I didn't paint it. It's this thing called Autoflex. It's like a anyway. Um, put some wheels on it, white wheels, and I rebuilt the engine, made it extra bus. And then I, and then I thought, you know what? I'm going to call it the Lancia Bastarda because it's kind of like a bastard car. It's not like a, you know, it's just this sort of, you know, illicit offspring of Lancia Delta Integrale. And I, and I got the, the, on the back of the car, it says Integrale, the, you know, the name of the car. And I had another plate made that said Bastarda and the same type typeface. And I put it on the back of the car and it really went kind of super viral on Instagram, like everyone was just, everyone was posting. And, and I think it just because people hadn't really seen when you have traditionally, no one really does a color, a modern color change on an old car because, you know, 
it's valuable. You don't want to destroy the value because it's been, you know, you, repainting upsets them, takes away the value, all that stuff. But so it, it went super viral. And I was friends uh, and Magnus and I were talking and Magnus did all these videos and he called me up and he said, listen, man, uh, what if I did like a video in the, what do you think about me doing a video in the Integral? I said, that's a genius idea. Of course you should do that because you know, how many videos could people watch of you driving around the Porsche at night? Like, you've got to change it up a bit. So he did a video in the Integrale, and then it became, like, I guess, sort of pretty famous. But before that, when I saw that Lancia Bastarda had gone viral, I thought, you know, what? I'm going to make some Lancia Bastarda keychains. And I made these just for love. I, I don't know. I, I just have these like, stupid ideas. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just crickets and sometimes they work. So I made the keychains. They sold out in like a week. And I thought, shit, that's interesting. And, and the other thing was, simultaneously, I was doing these Instagram lives just on my own. And when I get onto the Instagram live, I'd say, ciao, bastardi. I'd just call everyone bastardi or bastardo, right? Just because it just, I don't know, like it just seemed funny to me. And I realized that that was a brand, like bastardo was a brand. And, and, but more than that, it kind of, it was a reflection of who I was. Because bastardo is for me, the idea of contrarianism, it's the idea of taking the, the norm and twisting it, not accepting the, reg the, the, the way things are, but trying to look at them differently, not saying, I'm going to do it this way, saying, I'm going to do it that way. That's the bastardo life, right? That's me, but sounding much better. <laughs> bastardo is much better than pathological contrarian. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Just a, just a bit. So, um, so I got in touch with this friend of mine, Alex Aranovich is actually in San Diego as uh, a genus designer. And we came up with some stuff and then I made some clothes and some sweatshirts and stuff like that. And I sort of, <laughs> I launched it the day after my birthday in December. Um, and I just assumed that I was just going to be giving all this stuff to like in-laws and friends for the next 10 years. Cause I thought I'll sell maybe 10 <laughs> sweatshirts and then that's it. And it all sold in like, three days. It's, it's funny that you say that this kind of encapsulates the whole pathological contrarian thing. And it, it has a much nicer ring, but it also encapsulates what you said about British, like we were talking about how compliments are also wrapped in playful insults. That's exactly right, man. You're exactly right. Yeah. So it is that it is like when I call someone bastardo, that's a sign of affection, but it's a very English thing that, that you sort of insult people. I always say this to people when they sort of complain, I'm mocking them. I say, listen, if I'm not making fun of you, if an English person isn't making fun of you, it means they don't like you. I mean, some people just can't take it, right? Sure, sure. They don't, they don't know. They don't know what to do with that. No, it's so true. I mean, when I go to California, I realize I have to turn it down a couple of notches. 100%. By the way, California has this reputation for being this laid back place where everybody's just, you know, having a good time and relaxed and it's a hundred percent not relaxed and it is not laid back. Californians are wound so tight. Like you could probably power a Tesla. If your battery died, just throw a couple Californians in there and wire them up and you've got 400 mile range right there. Right there instantly. Absolutely. One other thing about the bastard of the thing has been incredibly gratifying is that, that, that it's become kind of like, you know how people talk about like a Porsche outlaw. So what's, what's really cool is that I feel like people are now using Bastardo as a new version of outlaw. Like people, I mean, I get emails or messages all the time on Instagram. I'm like, oh, this is a Bastardo car. 
And I love that because it means that people are really understanding what that means, that it's the, the, the nature, the etymology of that word. No, that's super cool. Having come up with that idea to see it kind of spread and disseminate, like verbal colonization, but less offensive, <laughs> less invasive. <laughs> less imperialist. Less imperialist, that's right. Less imperialist. This is part of your brilliance, dude. This is the whole, the whole pathological contrarian thing is working. <laughs> Well, well, thanks, man. I mean, it, I mean, it, look, it is, it is kind of surprising. It's just funny. Like you start off an Instagram page because you just want to, you know, you just want to talk about stuff you like. And then next thing you know, like you find out that people like the stuff you like and they kind of respect it. And that's massively shocking because I think, I mean, does anyone really assume that anyone else likes what they like? No, it's funny that way. And, but I think, well, there are some people out there who are just trying to please the masses which right. clearly works because look at the success of professional wrestling. But I mean, <laughs> for those of us who are maybe a little more quirky or esoteric, it's always like kind of delightful when people respond. Right. Yeah, that's right, man. I mean, Oh man, I can't, well, look, case in point, when I posted stuff about the Shamal, people just went nuts over that thing. I mean, no, one, I mean, it was just so cool to sort of, it's sort of like discovering some fossil and holding it up and people going, Oh, I like that. It was, was amazing to me, actually, how few people had heard of it. But then that makes me just realize how kind of into the weeds I am. You're totally into the weeds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can we just touch on the spacesuits? Tell me, what's, what's with the spacesuits? Well, it's just one. It's not like I have multiple suits hanging around. So when I was a kid, I was a massive science fiction nerd. I, I read this book by Robert Heinlein, this writer, and it was called Have Spacesuit, Will Travel. I must have been 10 or 11. Um, and it was about this guy, this kid who like bought like a used spacesuit, and then you know the anyway had this whole adventure. So I wrote to NASA. I actually have the letter. I have the book still, the original book I read. I wrote to NASA going, "Is there you know could I purchase a spacesuit from you?" And I got a letter back saying, "Well, yeah, obviously no, but thank you some you know some leaflets." But it was always my dream to have a spacesuit in the '90s when I worked in advertising. Um, before Google, I would Yahoo search spacesuit for sale. And so I found this guy in Poland who seemed to know a guy in Russia who had all this stuff for sale. And this is when the USSR was collapsing. So clearly, like some space museum had gone out, you know, closed their doors, and this guy had just like taken everything. So we negotiated over the course of like a year. And then I paid this guy five grand, which was almost all the money I had at the time. And I got the spacesuit. Which is was too small for me to wear, which is just gutting. So, Phil, I got to tell you, I have a very loving, understanding wife. But if I told my wife that I just spent five thousand dollars on a spacesuit, yeah, but you know what, man? I guess that spacesuit is worth like thirty grand now. I know. You're, again, the pathological contrarian is ahead of the curve. Well, I'll tell you what, man. The whole ahead of the curve thing. I mean, sometimes I just. I remember I had bought a nine thirty slant nose. 87 Porsche 930 slant nose seven or eight years ago. And I drove around and it was just, I just found the 930 a bit of a dog. Like it was four speed. It was just kind of not enjoyable. Um, and I could not sell that car. And it was a beautiful black, like 30,000 miles. Incredible. And I couldn't, I couldn't pay someone to take it away. Eventually I sold it for like a, I took a loss. I think I lost like seven grand on that car. And now they're whatever, 150 grand. But I don't know why I'm telling you that story. No, that's a very sad story. I do have a bit of a tear in the corner of my eye. <laughs> that's right, man. It's, yeah, it's a terror. I'm an amazing storyteller. 
Let me tell you. No, no, I know. I'm, I'm not being, I mean, I'm being facetious, but I'm not making fun of you because let's be honest, all of us wishes we could have a time machine to go back to about 1985 and buy as many long hood Porsches as we could find and throw them in a warehouse and just wait 30 years, right? And if I was in 1985, I'd be buying like 275 GTBs and all that for our 250 LMs. I mean, have you ever seen every now and then someone will send me like a, a uh, like a copy of like a the Wantads from 1974? If you want to cry, get a copy of Road and Track from like 74. Yeah, so. yeah. And it's all, and, you know, Ferrari GTO, 250 GTO for 15 grand. I know. I have a friend thinking. of mine. I know a guy who bought, he sold a GT, bought it for like 12 and sold it for 16 grand in the 70s and thought he just looks like he was just the most genius he'd made out. Ridiculous, right? Hey, um, I know we're short on time here. Give me a little background on the Bastardo Insignia because we're talking sure. about an enraged elephant with a broken bottle in its trunk coming at you furiously. So where, does, where does that come from? Well, this is, look, this is all the genius of my friend Alex, the designer. Um, so when I, when I was going to do Lancia Bastarda, the, the keychains, one of the iconography, one of the parts of the iconography of Lancia is a little galloping red elephant. Or is it yellow? It might be yellow. No, it's red. Um, so we took that elephant and we sort of made him more upright and we gave him a devil tail and, we, and that was on the first keychain. But then after we did that, I said to Alex, you know, I feel like he needs to be more hooligan. Like he needs just, he needs a little, it needs more. Just that's not enough. And I said, what if he's holding a bottle? And Alex said, well, uh, maybe it's a broken bottle. I was like, yes, that's it. That's genius. So that's how that happened. And then the, the Bastardo script is actually uh, inspired by Lancia typography that were on the, was on the cars in the 1930s. So that's where all that iconography comes from. Well, it's, fabulously integrated and the the rampage in the elephant's eyes is it, it's really good i, I love it well, and you know to, i mean the thing the funny thing is man I, I always feel like i always say that there's no logo that more personifies 2020 than a rampaging elephant waving a broken bottle <laughs> damn right well listen phil i i'm really grateful for your time today no man listen thanks for asking man it's really lovely talking to you you're most entertaining geezer yeah it's been a kick and i know you need to wrap this up but uh where can people procure their viva bastardo gear <laughs> man your rolling ours is supreme the well, viva bastardo uh on instagram just viva bastardo uh if you want to follow me for the watches and the cars and all the kind of general design lunacy that's mr enthusiast with m-i-s-t uh enthusiast um Mr. Toledano is kind of the art side on, on, the, on Instagram. Then there's mrtoledano.com, which is all the art. Uh, and that's it. Phil Toledano, it's been a pleasure. And I wish you ciao, Bastardo. Thank you so much. It's been a real joy, man. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.